0: Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This
1: is Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper, it's uh, St. Patrick's Day. March 17th, 2019.
1: Right.
0: And, and uh, we're not having corned beef and cabbage <clears throat> for dinner. Not yet. Uh, no, I guess not. I uh, guess not. Uh, we will. Actually, I corned my own beef again this year. Did you really? I did. It's uh, sitting at home uh-huh. in cranberry. Uh, you know, corning.
1: Corning, okay. Corning. We don't want, you can't rush the corning right. before it's time.
0: And uh, so we'll, we'll see how it comes out this year. All right. Well, I'm the looking problem forward is to that. that yes. uh, to make your own corned beef is shockingly more expensive right. than buying the corned beef raw meat in the store. And doesn't that tip
1: you off that there's something a little bit askew, perhaps, about the way corned beef is made? Yeah. Maybe a little, a little yeah. too much in the way of chemicals? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. I, I, you wonder. What that meat is. Well,
1: let's not ruin it for everybody.
0: Uh, so we'll see. But uh, meanwhile.
1: Something to look forward to.
0: It sort of looks like spring is coming.
1: That's right. And uh, we were out and about uh, yesterday, which was, you know, how shall we say, Arab St. Patrick's Day, if I can combine two cultures. Uh, the eve of St. Patrick's Day. You know, the Hebrew is Arab, and uh, yes. Uh, so we were looking for St. Patrick's Day revelers last Danny night. Boy. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was that Irish-Jewish connection. Uh, and we didn't see too much in terms of St. Patrick's revelers last night, but we suspect that some of that went on. The gym was a little light this morning.
0: We were sent photographs.
1: Yeah, it's true. We were. Revelers. We have photographic evidence. So I, I, I think that was the night. We'll see. Maybe maybe something will happen today or tonight also. But we were at the movies, uh, the cinema, and we saw Stan and Ollie, a movie uh, about, of course, uh, Laurel and Hardy that, I, at least speaking for myself, I had only tepid interest in. It's been out for some weeks. And I, and the reason being, I never liked Laurel and Hardy. And it's hard to get excited about seeing a movie about Laurel and Hardy if you don't think Laurel and Hardy are that funny. Uh, But I've heard very good things about the film.
0: It is shocking that we could be as old as we are and yet not old enough to to have been alive during uh, the Laurel and Hardy heyday.
1: That's that's right. Or old enough that you would find that funny.
0: And as I told you yesterday, I've spent my whole life just saying... Myself, I just don't get it. I, you know, I don't see well, the, yes. why people are rolling in the aisles. Uh, even as
1: a kid, I thought that. But so there we find ourselves in the theater yesterday at Doylestown, which to be clear, we can paint the picture here, has a f- kind of an older following, an older crowd. So we're in the younger set, I, I think, at the Doylestown Cinema. We watched the movies. And I only mention that. I'm,
0: I'm glad you think that, dear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I mention that is that as the movie unspooled, uh, there were a couple of routines they showed from Laurel and Hardy and there were people in the theater who were besides themselves with laughter. And I could only assume that they were more sensitive than we were or older I don't know what it was. It's, I, it's, I still don't get it. But having, I
0: think some people are slapstick people.
1: Maybe they are, and we're we're highly uh, sophisticated verbal comedy folks. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the fact of the matter is, I'm going too far <clears throat> astray here because we like the movie. We generally like the movie, and and so that endorsement means something because you got well, it from two people who aren't Laurel and Hardy fans.
0: One of the reasons we went, yeah, is because. It stars Steve Coogan, yeah. and John Riley, John C. Riley, and they're pretty good. And they're generally pretty good, right? So we had faith. Also, there was, you
1: know, I the uh, Rotten Tomato score was ninety three percent. Yeah,
0: and not just the critics; people <laughs> right. like it as right. well. Right. So, so um, it 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 bears out. Yes, it's slow going, right? But by the end, yeah, I was crying like crazy exactly it cried you know, like nobody's business really <laughs> in, was invested in, in the movie invested in that relationship yeah. and it's a story of a relationship right now also in it or, is um the two
1: supporting characters
0: yeah shirley henderson plays the wife of
1: uh hardy
0: hardy yes all who's goes mostly by the nickname babe
1: well, not, not Shirley, but uh, Hardy goes the, by nickname, Hardy, babe. Yes. yeah. Shirley goes a, by Shirley, probably, but yes. No, Lucille. She
0: played a character named, named Lucille. And, oh, yeah.
1: And, and Yeah, and she's been around a little bit. She's been recognized in certain films and Doctor Who and the like. So some folks may be familiar with her. She was very good. Nina Ariande, who's one of our favorites. Played Arianda. Arianda, it got me. Uh, played uh, the wife of Stan Laurel, and she's, of course, great because she's always great. And the two wives together were great. I, and yes. I, I think you could make a case that their exchanges were funnier than the exchanges between Laurel and Hardy.
0: Possibly.
1: Yeah. They're just funny. But
0: here's my problem. What's that? What is Nina Arianda huh? doing?
1: Uh, what?
0: Why is she not a superstar by now? Okay. Here's something. She was in Venus Infer, Right. Right. Uh, theater. Right. F- play. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen much of her... On Broadway but here's, lately. Here's something you we have to see know. see only little smitter smatters. Yes. <laughs> in <laughs> films. Yeah. Where is she? All right.
1: Nina Arianda is great, but here's something that you may not know about her. Okay? She's very young. She won the Tony for. Wrong
0: b- O. Oh. Wrong O chronology. How, how old do you think she is? She's in her 30s.
1: That's right. She early 30s.
0: Dang, in. She's a kid. No,
1: but but let me finish my point. She wins the just so we're clear, so people know she wins the Tony Award for Best Actress. There's no small thing. She's 23 years old, okay, when she wins that, or or yeah, I think 23. I think she. How
0: did that? We saw that more than 10 years ago.
1: We saw that the year before that, like eight or nine years ago. Uh, oh yeah, my God. And, and and she should be the bottom a
0: superstar line is by now. She's in her early What's 30s now. What's the girl now. doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, yay. Yeah. Yeah. I, she's, she's not as old as you In think Hollywood she is. In
0: Hollywood terms, the clock is ticking, Oh, baby. man,
1: you are rough. She's a very interesting person. You know she's, She is very interesting. She, she her parents, fabulous. Her parents are immigrants from the Ukraine. She went to school. She She's the only one of the few people you see who, uh, I, I think she has a BA from the new school and then got a master of fine arts from NYU. Uh, you know, she's the real deal. She's an immigrant who came here to make it big. She's got that heavy Russian accent, which she can turn on. Anyway, she's hysterically funny. Uh, and another to see, reason to see the movie. I want
0: to see more of her. Okay.
1: Well, we'll get her on the podcast. Uh, anyway, uh, and uh, directed by John Baird. So we, we recommend the movie, but again, perhaps not for everybody. A little bit of a gentle movie, uh, but we like it. And we're, and, and we're running out of movies, so uh, we had to see it. Uh, the other thing that we want to mention that's uh, coming up, and we like to get a little ahead of the curve on this, because it's just the weekend set of performances, and that's Encores has its second production uh, of this year, which is scheduled to play from, I'll say, Wednesday to Sunday. Uh, and, you know, Encores, of course, does uh, remount musicals, which are not the biggest musicals in the world, but they feel they're worth seeing, if only in a weekend set of concert performances. Uh, it's going to be this weekend, I Married an Angel. Married an Angel is the third collaboration from Rogers and Hart, uh, perhaps their last collaboration. Before Rogers went on to get together with Hammerstein. Really? Yes. And Rogers and Hart, as you told me when we were undergraduates in college uh, some years ago, was the real deal, as opposed to Rogers and Hammerstein, which were some kind of pretenders. But Rogers and Hart, uh, a little bit sharper, a little more acerbic, a little wittier. Well, Lorenz Hart you know, Went to Columbia. A dangerous character.
0: And, uh, you know, he a questionable had a way good. with words.
1: And a little bit of, uh, of an alcoholic. You know, when it, yes. it, well, he
0: had a uh, tough life. He had yes. uh, many issues, many challenges. But um, I remember when I found the Rodgers and Hart songbook on my grandfather's piano. Yes. It blew my mind. Well, you were an, an impressionable young girl. Life.
1: All right, all right. So in any event, the story here, and well, more to say next week, but we mentioned it now because you might get tickets now, Right, is that uh, uh, it's about, uh, you were explaining to me, an angel comes down and and marries someone who is having trouble finding the right girl. But in terms of uh, the way this is done, uh, the Encores folks say their last two uh, productions of this season, this one and the one that follows, are going to be homages to choreographers because City Center has a great connection to dancing and choreographers, and this is their 75th season at City Center. So this is George Balanchine, who is being celebrated as the choreographer of I Married an Angel. And apparently when he mar- mounted I Married an Angel some time ago, George Balanchine choreographed and his wife, as they say in the program at the time, uh, starred as the leading lady in the production. Well, in order to follow suit, uh this time they're having the choreographer, uh, Josh Burgess, uh, instructing the lead, his wife, Sarah Mearns, who is a city uh, ballet star. So they're trying to do the same sort of thing, I guess. And we're going to see a little bit of George Balancing Dancing. Now, having said all that, I'm not the biggest fan of the dance, the specific, particularly classic dance. And yet I'm in. I'm in. I'm looking forward to this. I'm not. Oh, what?
0: I mean you know maybe the dance will be great and that'll be fun and that will make it we'll see but uh, you look at the list of songs there's not one song oh no you're ruining no. it for me okay well we'll there's see not one song you know so that tells well listen something. I,
1: I will say this and you can disagree with me I continue to say if anyone's interested in musical theater get a ticket it's not such a big deal it's $75 a person you can get it at the city center uh, it's a series that's worth getting involved with and get to know that's what I would say I don't think course. it's
0: always even that much.
1: Yeah, maybe it's less. So we, I, I'm recommending it from that perspective. But Meanwhile. I, having seen it. Back
0: at the ranch. You went to something I without you. I accidentally went to the theater without this me. week without, without you. you. Without your husband.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: I went to the Bucks County Playhouse. Yeah, there you go. Because I read a little ad somewhere. I was reading, uh, catching up on the Bucks County Herald or something. Yeah. And I saw a little ad As for it. a reading of a play at the Bucks County Playhouse. Yeah. Uh, from a series curated by Marsha Mason. Okay, so that's a household name, and the play. Can I jump was, in here for yes. you,
1: for the households that don't know the name? Marsha Mason was, of course, married to Neil Simon, and she was in uh, the star of Act Two and The Goodbye Girl. So that's where the household name stuff comes from. All right, go ahead. So
0: um, the play was The Torch Bearers, right? By George Kelly. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think first performed at the Bucks County Playhouse uh, a long, long time ago in 1949. Wow. All right, so George Kelly. Yeah. All right. Uh, a um, successful American playwright, uncle to Grace Kelly
1: Princess Grace.
0: Princess Grace. Of Monaco. Who actually was a theater intern. Oh, God. Um, in 1949 at the Bucks County Playhouse. And had a role in the play. Yes. Okay. So uh, she was in Uncle George's play. And uh, so they were doing a reading. And I thought it sounded intriguing. And it was during the week at 7 p.m. when you cannot possibly get all the way from Manhattan to New Hope PA right uh, so I went, you went all by myself and, 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 and
1: you and you put forward your 20 bucks and you twenty sat- bucks
0: it was twenty dollars and I sat in the front row Oof. it had a good crowd and it was very good it was a farce you know it was a 1940s play yeah no doubt about right. it and uh, you know a lot of physical humor but of course you didn't really get that. Because it was a reading, not, you know, a fully realized performance. But uh, it had... One of the reasons I did go was not just Marsha Mason. Marsha Mason was actually in it, but also in it were, was uh, John Rubenstein. Uh, Dana,
1: um, Ivy. Dana, Dana Ivy, Dana Ivy, Dana yeah. Ivey,
0: right? Yeah. Um, so, and there, was, and you know, again, there were names that I knew well, and also... It was only two performances, one in Manhattan and then two nights later in New Hope. And I said, well, if they're going to do it in Manhattan.
1: How bad can it be?
0: Yeah. It uh, must be good. Look, so, uh, but, by the end of it, I find out it was directed by Dylan Baker. Yeah. And when he walked up, there was a Q and A after uh, the play. When he walked up to uh, take questions, um, I said, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. What do I know that guy from? Yeah. And uh, you explained to me later, I knew him from, from the, the Americans, Americans and a lot of other uh, a stuff. A lot of other stuff, yeah. Turned out, the terrific Becky Ann Baker, who played uh, the, I would say the lead female, aside uh-huh. from Marsha Mason, um, is his wife. Hmm. So again, a family A affair. family affair. And the ingenue was played by Princess Grace's Niece,
1: Ooh, really a family affair.
0: Gina Levine. Um, so it was really a lot of fun, and it was great to be there, and it was great to have all these connections. Yeah. And then I was telling our buddy uh, Mark Snyder about it, and he said, "Oh yeah, um, Dylan Baker was uh, my neighbor when I lived in New York." Yeah. And so. Uh, and yeah, he had
1: great Halloween parties. You great know. Halloween parties. as one does.
0: But uh, so <laughs> that was really that was kismet. Yeah, no, that was just out of listen, nowhere. Great little performance. I think it's great. $20. Well, um, and I came out of it very excited about the Bucks County Playhouse. I
1: didn't even pay $25 for something like that.
0: Uh, okay. Anyway, but here's the problem. What's that? So I'm all excited about Bucks County Playhouse. I go online, see what else they've got coming down the pipe. Yeah. And Not much. Not much. Not much. And it's also hard to get through their website. It's hard yeah. to actually negotiate and find what their productions are. And they have a lot of little blips by yeah. so-called visiting artists. Uh, but if you want to see what their you know, main offerings are, which include Once, a musical, Mamma Mia, and other things... The only way you can find it is by clicking well, on. Yeah, s- look, I look subscription. I don't series. want to comment on their
1: website. I will say I wasn't that impressed by their offerings, but I, I, I like readings. I think we both like readings, and I, and they can be cool. And this was I don't cool. Know if I like
0: readings, I liked this.
1: I, I think we. I think generally they have a lot of problems, and the names there, they're big. I mean, Dana Ivy is a big Broadway figure. She's a woman of a certain age at this point, but she's well known. You know. um... John Rubenstein. I saw John Rubenstein in Pippin, the original Pippin a million years ago. And this is purely for Mark's benefit, Mark. Uh, John Rubenstein uh, is Arthur Rubenstein's son. So you all know that. what that means. Um, but beyond that, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm just sorry that there's not more things like that scheduled. We'll yeah. have to look for it. Like low-key,
0: not blockbuster, yeah. you know, accessible, interesting I, things to do. Sounds very interesting. Yeah.
1: Uh, all right. So uh, the other thing going on now, uh, as we look forward to the next week, the NCAA basketball tournament. It's going to be hard to concentrate on anything else.
0: I am really looking forward to it. That's a,
1: because good. I have Why? a lot of work, whatever for. I
0: have a lot of work to do on my jigsaw puzzle, and, and which is what I do while you're watching the tournament. Really? Yes. What a life we. But are also, in. my mother loves. <laughs> basketball and in order to stay in the conversation with yeah. her I have to know what's going on
1: someone's gonna to have to tell our University of Pittsburgh's not going to be in it but I'll, I'll leave that to you uh so everyone's gonna be in a pool I hope everyone listening is going to be in a pool uh here's both the good and bad of what's going on pool wise to me it's mostly bad they've changed the way they rank the teams in the tournament in other words the way they set up the brackets is they seed them and you pick against, you pick who you want to win and you pay some attention to the seeds. But if everyone just picked the higher seed, we'd all have the same score. So you have to have a reason to vary from the seeds. There was always a good reason in the past. And that was that the seeds were based on some kind of statistical analysis called the RPI. Okay. They're now changing it to the NET, different statistical analysis. And here's why that's important. The RPI was based on what a team achieved during the year.
0: Really peculiar index?
1: Yeah. Well, I forget what the RPI stands for. It doesn't make any difference. But the NET stands for how a team is projected to do in the tournament. And for those of us who've been picking for years and raking in the dough, we would look at sites like KenPom.com, named after Ken Pomeroy, a statistician, which would be focused on something like the NET. They say, notwithstanding that this team managed to win 20 games, they're going nowhere. Because there's a divergence between what they've accomplished and what they're likely to do based on this statistical analysis. Now the NCAA has jumped to what they're likely to do, so there's no edge to be gained there. So, So,
0: so as middleman, you're out.
1: I'm out. You just got to pick a winner. I think that winner is going to be Duke. But, but does not really most
0: people in their uh, office pools, they're just they're doing picking random calling. picking? I, I think know.
1: perhaps you're speaking from your own experience more than the way it's done. No, I don't have an office The pros, <laughs> but this is a big money thing. In any event, uh, Duke is not an original pick, so I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, but they're kind of well positioned. We shall see. Uh, oh, so you're picking Duke? Yeah. Yes. All right. It's an easy interesting. pick to make. Yeah, interesting. Not that interesting. You I wish it was it more. To, yes. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Go, Go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. You have this. You had an article that we both seized upon, which is this, this racket that the museums are sort of storing away their their greatest treasures. Well, you're really hostile today. No, um,
0: a big article in the New York Times newspaper in the past week about museum storage. Yes. <laughs> Late breaking news. Right. Most most of what's in a museum's collection is not on view. Most for most, most wow! The vast majority that's crazy um, is not on view to the public, and that includes the Metropolitan Museum of New York, which is ginormous in terms of really? what's on display. It has even more acres, more. Hidden away in stores. So they have they have like
1: lockers in the Port Authority with all these old paintings stored they have in them.
0: Lockers in interesting places. Yeah. Uh, really? Some of them in Long Island and New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, actually, that store, you know, in uh, uh, you know, hermetically sealed vaults. <laughs> Let's <hope> so. <laughs> um, Let's hope it's still there. But uh, so, but also, I mean, more and more, all the museums have tried to. Uh, put on display storage areas. They yeah. create storage areas that uh, visitors can walk through. And with, you know, very little uh, information, you know, uh, tons of paintings and silver and objects are available mm. um, to, uh, for people to gaze at. So... It's not news that that uh, there is all this stuff in storage, and why is there so much in storage? Um, why would you have things that you don't, you aren't able to put on view? One reason is when people give large gifts. Uh, Often the museum has to take the whole collection, oh. but not the whole collection is not necessarily worthy of being on display. Um, for instance, uh, the Metropolitan Museum uh, got a collection from Adelaide Milton de Groot in 1967, more than 200 paintings. There were only a half dozen mm-hmm. of that collection uh, was worthy of being on display, and the rest not so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when Thomas Hoving goes to sell uh, some of the uh, unworthy uh, works of art, he gets in a lot of trouble. Mm. Uh, there's a public outcry uh, because people feel that the <clears throat> when things are in a museum, they're in the public trust and how dare he just sell them to raise money.
1: So he can't do it? So he's got to hold on to it? The other,
0: thing, the other reason you may not be able to do it is there may be some kind of prohibition in the, uh, um, bequest. In yeah. the yeah. bequest itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, either that, uh, uh, for instance, uh, there's a, a big collection. Uh, let's see, uh, do I know who it was from? Uh, a bequest by Colonel Michael Freedsome, once president of the department store, B. Altman, who died in 1932, a quarter of those gifts turned out to be fakes, misattributed or of really poor quality. They can't get rid of them really? because the be- bequest requires any deaccessioning to be approved by uh, the estate's executors, and the last of the executors died in 1962. Well, you see, so so
1: this is somewhat responsive. I pointed out to you, I saw a couple of letters after this article appeared from folks, you know, one in particular associated... Letters to the editor. Letters to the editor of the Times. Someone complaining that, saying that they're associated with a smaller museum, that they and other smaller museums would benefit by getting on loan, perhaps, from the museum, the stuff in their vaults, because surely that's worth displaying and let's share the wealth. But you're saying that those things aren't necessarily any good.
0: Um, sometimes that uh, the museums are not a bit able to do that. Yeah. But there is a fair amount of that that goes on. I think that letter also said, uh, you know, maybe uh, the big museums who are being offered collections or objects could redirect the donors to these other smaller institutions, I right. which I think would be a great idea. Well, that
1: does make sense because they um, probably have plenty of stuff already. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And you made the point to me yesterday that if you've got one Egyptian mummy, you've got all the Egyptian mummies you need.
0: Uh, well, uh, I didn't say it quite like that, but uh, perhaps. Um, you know Certain museums have more than they need in, uh, various, uh, in terms of various objects. Um, another interesting um, sort of result yeah. of this kind of overabundance of goodies is that uh, the Art Museum of Indianapolis... Um, actually started uh, ranking its collection from A to D. Like A, masterpiece, Mm. D, uh, not so much, not really worthy of the collection in order to begin to cull, etc. And that seems to upset, uh, upset some people, but it has also facilitated a more orderly uh, process of deaccessioning things museums can't really afford to simply maintain, mm. not on display. They're not doing anybody any good. Um, but another one of the letters you passed on to me, uh, letters to the editor also, uh, encouraged the idea of, well, why don't you just have the lesser art, uh, next to the oh, good yeah. art? Yeah. Um, will actually bother to read the label
1: uh, if
0: that's made clear Um, frankly in terms of display museums don't have enough room to display the good stuff Uh, so you know in a couple cases it might be fun to do that but you would really have to make sure that people are bothering to understand uh, what's so called good why it's considered good why it's more uh, interesting than why it's less interesting uh, than uh, well, yeah. The Masterpiece.
1: Well, the problem of the displaying lesser art takes us to the next subject by uh, Segway, which is uh, Be More Chill. So Be More Chill is a musical now appearing on Broadway that has a little bit of uh, a sensation. Maybe that's too strong a term. But it, it was on Off-Broadway a couple of years ago. Uh, the, uh, there's a lot of performances on YouTube about this uh, of the songs, the soundtrack was released from two years ago. It's gotten some play and some following, and channels like the Serious Broadway channel have been championing it, like saying, "Well, this is music worth listening to." And based on all this enthusiasm, they've mounted a Broadway production, um, and uh, the broad, and it's, it's a story basically of uh, growing up, of, uh, of one. It's a fictional, but it's one particular character who has trouble fitting in, has terrible teenage angst and anxiety. All these fantastic things happening to make him more cool and less cool. He, he just learns to be more chill. Then he learns the problems with being more chill. And uh, it's, it borders on science fiction. Uh, and it has all these enthusiastic songs. Based on a book. I'm going to get to, that. I'm get to the book. i are going to get to that,
0: but it is based on a book. So a popular so, young adult So book.
1: in some ways, it's been uh, an eagerly awaited production on Broadway. And the Times reviewed it just the other day. And the Times hated it. So just to give you a couple of lines, and I'll tell you exactly why, uh, the, the Times describes all the momentum behind uh, the uh, musical, and uh, The Times says if it sustains that momentum, momentum it will, because it has traits that undeniably set it apart from its competition. Now I'm reading, for one thing, it is by cold critical standards the worst of a lot of these musicals with a repetitive score painfully forced rhymes, cartoonish acting, and a general approach that mistakes decibel level for emotional intensity. Alone among Broadway, musicals Be More Chill feels as if it could have been created by the teenagers it portrays, or perhaps by even younger people, imagining what high school will be like. And it goes on from there. It, is, uh, it takes it apart. I mean, it's kind of funny. It calls it a festival of klutziness. Cl- et cetera, et cetera, and it has a good time. Uh, and uh, at the same time, though, the Times says, and I think this is serious, I don't think they're trying to be ironic at the end, uh, that the musical has what they call the goofy karaoke quality of kids performing boisterously for other kids. It doesn't try to dazzle the audience. For better or worse, this may be the only show on Broadway that a tween could see and think happily, hey, I could do that at home.
0: So I think all theater geek tweens, uh, any musical they go to, they say to themselves, "I could do that at home." Maybe, but 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 <laughs> you but you look at it and you say, "Well, what's going on? What's the story How does with it this?" Do in the box office, do you have any idea? I don't
1: know. It's only been open for a few days. It's just open on Monday, but, but you, you, it had a great advance sale. Okay, it's written. Uh, the story is written by a, a guy named Ned Vizzini. Ned Vezini writes what's called young adult fiction, right? Or did, and he wrote this thing called "Be More Chill." Uh, Ned Vizzini, though, uh, happened to have a lot of serious anxiety and depression problems bordering on mental illness. Uh, his other large, uh, widely read book, uh, was a book called It's Kind of a Funny Story, which is about when in 2004 he felt so desperate he thought about killing himself. He called this a suicide prevention line and he was hospitalized and he spent five days in a hospital and it's kind I of a funny is story, is about his okay. experience in the hospital. So this is a fellow with serious issues. That was written in 2004, being more chill around the same time. Uh, only recently, of course, got turned into a musical. But Ned Vizzini then had some success, moved out to California. But in December of 2013, while, going, while back in Brooklyn visiting his family, actually committed suicide.
0: And this was especially tragic because he had... Gotten married, right? He had a young child. Yeah, yeah, right. And the and Uh, child survived. It seemed like things were turning around,
1: right? And his wife and child now are in Brooklyn.
0: And *Be More Chill* was being made into a musical, right? He never got the. The article says he never got to hear any of the music, right? Um, So so.
1: you know, it's it again. It's it's. I think the story has an audience. I think the musical has an audience, whether we're going to call them uh, sort of musical. Uh, nerds or if you're going to talk about just teenagers who are tweens and experience a certain level of anxiety or just focused on high school, it's it's maybe it's just a kid's show, which is fine. But there's an audience for that. And I think they may have an audience for that. It, and we'll see. We're looking forward not to that in particular, but we're going to be seeing in a few weeks uh, Kiss Me Kate, which one might call an adult show. And the reason I bring that up because there's a little bit of there's been an article already about how Kiss Me Kate has been perhaps a little dumbed down or brought down by the notion of making it more politically correct. We saw an article in Playbill about someone who was brought in to tweak some of the lyrics and and, and some of the dialogue, so that it's possible that a young girl could come out feeling empowered uh, after watching of Kiss of course, Me, Kate. Kiss
0: Me, Kate is based on Taming of the Shrew, right and by there Shakespeare. Are a lot of uh, bad things uh, expressed. There's sexual about politics, women's role, right, in, in the world, right. Um, but it, on the other hand. It's, uh, you know, it was one of my great awakenings. Right. Uh, when I first heard uh, all the lyrics to some of those songs, uh, I said, wait a minute. Yeah. This is fantastic. Right. I didn't know uh, people could write like this. Right. Um, it seemed like a whole different world compared to Mary Poppins and right. uh, even My Fair Lady or Sound of
1: Music. Well, it sounded uh, like so. Rodgers and Hortons. It's Cole Porter. Uh, it's not Frozen. So, uh, anyway, we're well, looking uh, for that. Look, uh, there, there are different audiences for different shows. So,
0: we'll see. About and Kiss Me, Kate. You know, our listeners may remember that we went to a production of Gigi, which, which was awful. And it was awful. made politically correct and, and uh, pointless. And uh, pointless. <laughs> uh, but so, I should
1: should say one final thing. Kiss Me, Kate did get a very, very positive review in the Times the other day. Well,
0: it's starring Kelly O'Hara. There you go. Um And... We're,
1: Almost certainly worth seeing. But we will take a Always sharp work. eye to it in a couple of weeks.
0: Okay. So, here we go. Um, a few health issues. Yes, keep it clean. Um, here. You know, I, I often enjoy the health section of the New York Times. And uh, it, this will not be clean at all in any sense of the word. Yes. Uh, there's an article about hygiene. And there's an article about breast size, how breast size affects exercise yes um, and uh, it actually somebody has done a, ste- a study that says that women with large breasts don't really like to run
1: that's uh, a. <laughs> it's about time
0: breaking news it's about time that study was done out, it turns out that uh biomechanical studies show that when women Bio, biomechanical run, studies biomechanical Uh, When women run braless, their breasts joggle up and down by seven inches or more and also oscillate side to side. Sports bras may attenuate this jostling, but rarely eliminate it, even in women with small breasts. And uh, so, uh, late breaking news. There you have it. So, it, it comes from trying to understand... What people uh, do for exercise, how they make that choice, uh, maybe so we uh, with the idea of helping people find better choices in exercise, uh, and uh, it really uh, these people sound like idiots. <laughs> I have to say, not the women with I the large mean, breasts, but no, the, the, the people women, already the, the study doing yes. the study, yes. you know, who yeah. are from Australia right. and they are female. Uh, All I can say is they must not exercise. They come out with the um, pronouncement that, uh, you know, a woman should find large breasted women should find uh, exercises like walking or swimming. Swimming, that is, if one can find a comfortable swimsuit with a built in bra. Uh,
1: I have no comment on any of this.
0: And, (laughs) uh, you know, and if you want to run. Uh, some of their tips include perhaps wearing two bras at once. Mm. Where are these people from? Mars? Um, they're just—it sounds like they're just trying to make exercise uh, more um,
1: uh, ominous, ominous yeah. than ever. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, yes, I'm going to get up and put on two. I don't even know how you put on two bras. One at a time is
1: the answer. Um, to but like they yeah. do
0: note that men have their own. Morphological challenges know this is related yes, to exercise all right. All right. with male genitalia vulnerable to numbing mm. bicycle seats and errant soccer balls. Mm. But yeah. those issues are not known to limit men's willingness. Mm. I mean, can we just say that I think size matters here? <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, uh, women and their breasts, that may be a bigger issue uh, than... Uh,
1: yeah, male gender. Ma- I, I don't know. In many ways, I'm just saying. All right, I'm so, just saying. Yes, and, then, uh, and you had also a very uh, borderline article about hygiene.
0: Uh, well, there's a fabulous article uh, that uh, says uh, called "The Immune Fix" in the New York Times. Good hygiene is valuable, but the body's defenses also need to wage germ warfare. And uh, actually, what it asks is things like, should you pick your nose? Not only should you pick your yeah, nose, don't Daniel, say it, yes. you should probably eat it. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, here's the problem. Uh, we're not exposed to enough bacteria, good or otherwise. Our immune system needs to be exposed to these things so it knows how to deal with it. And this all goes back to kind of an interesting... Uh, a study, um, the the hygiene hypothesis. And this goes back to the 19th century when people started discovering, 1872, people started discovering that uh, the um, occurrence of hay fever, hay fever was called the aristocratic disease because it was noted that... uh, It was almost uh, wholly confined to the upper classes of society, and um, mostly amongst the educated as well. Because they weren't exposed to (laughs) hay. Well, I'm guessing not just hay. They weren't exposed to. I mean, they were washing their hands and uh, had smaller families. So when you have a smaller family, you're not exposed to as many, you know, siblings coming and going with uh, miscellaneous. diseases and bacteria from others. And as time went on, this inverse relationship, Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say that uh, the um, more siblings a child had, the less likely that he or she would get allergies just seemed to be affirmed. Yeah. Well, that's okay. On and on and on and 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 so uh, we have uh, made our lives, our society too clean, and uh, we're not. Exposed. Well, you read
1: that, but people say the pure L stuff, the washing your hands. They you say know, that is that's very, truth.
0: very, very bad. Yeah. No, okay. we. I've heard that, uh, and uh, it. Uh, we should, um, you know. Try to be uh, exposed to more, (laughs) more dirt, more earth, more germs, uh, and uh, rather be immunized, not uh, purified. Okay. Uh, So, and but what's interesting? A lot of what uh, our society, humankind, has spent millennia combating reactions to disease right Uh, we started washing our hands Uh, we uh, various societies learned to avoid certain foods Mm. uh, such as shellfish or pork things that tended to give you diseases like and meat Mm. for instance Uh, high incidences of e coli pork high incidence of trigonosis so we developed various strategies to avoid these things. But now we've gone too far. Okay. Uh, so pick your notes. <coughs> oh, God. Um,
1: all right. One story on St. Patrick's, quickly, because we have to. But it's a cute story. It was in the Wall Street Journal. It was about a guy, from a guy named uh, Hennessey, Matthew Hennessey, uh, who is the uh, Wall Street Journal's deputy editorial features editor. turns out that Mr. Hennessy uh, grew up in Morristown, New Jersey, where his family had a bar under the train tracks called, you guessed it, Hennessy's. Uh, an Irish bar. An Irish bar, and their big day was, again, you guessed it, St. Patrick's Day. And he has a little piece about what it was like in St. Patrick's Day in the 80s at Hennessy's. And it's uh, it's a little eye-opening. I guess maybe some people know this. I didn't know this, that when you were at a bar in New Jersey, St. Patrick's Day in the 80s, you open the doors at 7 o'clock in the morning, there was a line outside waiting to get in and get a drink, 7 a.m.
0: I think this is not surprising to some of our friends.
1: All right, well, news to me, and uh, they would prepare at Hennessy's for this. They knew that they would have a huge crowd all day, and they knew that the huge crowd would be boisterous, so there would be no glasses no bottles, no glass anywhere to be found because it was going to be too dangerous. They'd be pouring beer in paper cups. They're just to, pouring domestic beer, nothing special, and they couldn't pour it fast enough. Uh, people would be getting uh, Irish whiskey and mixing it with orange juice, which they thought was gross, but the customer's always right. And they would also prepare by putting together a whole raft of corned beef sandwiches. They'd be put in wax paper. Their aunt would do this, and they'd sell for two bucks a piece with and without mustard, depending on a person's preference. And they made a killing. Uh, so the young Hennessy would be home and he'd get a call in the middle of the day uh, that uh, he, he and the mother, his mother was needed. They would drive down. The young uh, Hennessy would fight his way through the crowds. And what was he needed for? Two things. Number one, he was needed to take the cash home. It was almost all cash. There were a lot of temporary help that day. They had to bring it home once or twice a day. And he was given a paper bag filled dad with cash. Didn't want all this cash sitting exactly. in the bar. Right. Okay. And the other reason he had to be there <laughs> was he had to bring a plunger because that's the way it <laughs> went that day. Uh, and that was his regular dealings. And he would always say to himself, this is great. Now we've got all this money. We're going to be, you know, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. We're going to get a new car. And he learned the hard way that that's not the way small businesses are. The reason that they love St. Patrick's Day was the money, but the money was necessary because January, February were slow months. And it would be they needed it. They needed to it to pay the bills. To pay the bills, and that's what it was used for. Uh, he points out. He said, "Look, eventually the business slowed down, and my dad would come home in time for all of us to watch *The Quiet Man* together on St. Patrick's Day, as everyone should." Uh, and, and then now it's a tapas bar. But but that said, he says there are more Irish bars. You didn't
0: say tapas bar.
1: I said tapas.
0: You said tapas. Yes. Okay.
1: Get your mind back on what we're doing here. And uh, Tapas Bar. and But there are more than Irish bars than ever now in Morristown. There are only two then, which is another reason that they had the business they did. So, anyway, uh, kind of a cute article. And a reminder that on St. Patrick's Day, we should all watch uh, A Quiet Man, which, by the way, is on TCM tonight at 8 o'clock.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. Yes. And, uh, now I have an article about a new board game. Yeah. This is dedicated to yeah. Kathy Easton. Yes. Um, our local naturalist and, uh, mother of our engineer Ellie mm-hmm. and our son Zeke Aguioff. Mm-hmm. Who uh, is... uh, A board
1: game fanatic.
0: Yes, and hangs out with a lot of board game fanatics. fanatics. Anyway, so this is the story of Elizabeth Hardgrave's new um, board game, Wingspan, uh, which came out recently and is doing quite well. I have to say, in the pre-order period in January... More than 5,000 games sold in a week. Now on its third print run, 30,000 games in English, 14,000 in foreign language editions. Okay. Um, this is somehow between birders and gamers, this bird, birder gamer hybrid. Wingspan has found its followers. She's also working on a um, game about the Victorian language of flowers. That game will be called Tussie Mussie, and a game about butterflies, monarch butterflies called Mariposa.
1: Um,
0: That's coming out as well. And so it's just kind of a fun story, mostly about her love of birds and her love of math. And her love of games mm. and, uh, to the, she and her friends on some game night were sitting around saying, why isn't there a game that's interesting to us? They've been flailing about, uh, playing things like castles of Burgundy, mm. um, which involves pretending to be an aristocrat in medieval France. And so she does indeed come up with her own game. What's also interesting about this art from this article uh, is, uh, you know, how these games are developed. And game design theory, which the article says coalesced as a discipline barely two decades ago, um, and uh, in game design theory includes at least two competing perspectives. Ludology comes from the Latin to play, ludo, uh, ludus, and uh, the study of which is the study of game rules and mechanisms and narratology the study of player storylines and experiences and uh, so the article goes on to quote the essential elements outlined by mark leblanc a designer and programmer in his book eight kinds of fun sensation fantasy narrative challenge fellowship discovery expression and submission and uh miss Hartgrave you know, has this posted above uh, her workspace and asks herself, how am I doing? Am I hitting right. these I hope pilots? you're listening,
1: Zeke. This is the way it's done. This is um, the way the pros do it.
0: The beginning of game design process, says Matthew O'Malley, a game designer and one of Mrs. Hargrave's perpetual testers, is about finding the fun. Okay, where Wingspan really succeeds is in giving players lots of agency. It offers numerous paths to victory without inducing analysis paralysis. Okay, so it engages. Right. And then the, then the article goes on to talk about uh um how the games are tested and how uh you know different uh, places like the Board and Brew Cafe in College Park mm-hmm. uh runs uh, these focus groups with gamers trying out these various games. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was very interesting the, about the process and how people come up with these games, how they test them, okay. uh, how they tweak them, etc. So Wingspan Great board game for birders. Yes. All right. Apparently.
1: All right. I, okay. I missed the game, Gene. So now Zeke's got it. Um, are you a gaming person? You're not a gaming person.
0: You know, but maybe I will be. All right. Okay. You know, we've, are, we've been sort of uh, lacking. You know, we we're we're surrounded by game people, right? Granger loves games. Huh? Uh, Dixon uh, loves games. The, uh, I, I think it's going to come to us. You used to play a lot of Scribbage. scribbage. Cr- cribbage. Cribbage. Yes.
1: <laughs> the uh, final thing was just mostly a musical interlude at the end. Uh, there was a uh, an obituary for a fellow named Hal Blaine, who I'd never heard of. He was a drummer. And uh, the obituary, uh, you know.
0: Hal Blaine?
1: B-L-I-N-E. It was interesting, but uh, not that interesting. But they followed up with another story explaining who Blaine, Hal Blaine is. And it turns out that he's on... Oh, a whole raft of big albums, major albums in the 60s and 70s. I guess more than I realized, a lot of these groups didn't have their own drummers that they stuck with all the time. And when they got in the studio, the studio would say, no, no, you need Hal Blaine. And so what do I mean by that? He, he, they just have in the article here, I won't list every one, that he's, uh, he's the drummer for another Saturday night for Sam Cooke, for Mr. Tambourine Man, from The Birds. For good vibrations from the Beats Boys, A Hazy Shade of Winter, Simon and Garfunkel, Mary Mary from the Monkees, uh, on and on, uh, uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, Herb Albert. I mean, this guy was the drummer, and they say as an example here, they give as an example, perhaps the best, uh, you know, interlude of his that's, that people hear and recognize is from Be My Baby. From the Ronettes, and I and I heard that name. And I had a vague recollection of the drums. When I thought about it, we went to play it, and I I I was listening to it. And I didn't hear the drums, but you said to me, "Well, that's the live version. Get the studio version." And I played the studio version. And it's all about the drums, so we're going to play you right now. But
0: even I, and I have no musical memory. Yeah. Even I could hear that drum solo the minute you mentioned it well, in my. Well, you're going to hear it now because we're going to play
1: uh, and, "Be My Baby," and But I, it
0: just points out to you how complex yeah. things can be, right? Yeah. It takes a village. Somebody is crafting yeah. uh, those drum interludes. It, it didn't spring full grown out of uh, the Ronettes' heads. No, no, uh, it, it, it came or from Hal the Blaine. Beach Boys. Uh, um, this is all a much more, uh, I would say, intricate process than we imagined. Well, if, if you want to get down to it, look, to it.
1: the Ronettes, that's Ronnie Spector. Phil Spector was the producer. Yeah. Phil Spector said to, he was building a so-called wall of sound. He brought in Hal Blaine and said, Hal, do what you do. And so we are going to play right now for you. Be my baby and my advice is listen for the drums. You won't miss it. And you'll see Tamson's point.
0: I uh, hope oh. you've been enjoying that green beer. This is Tamson Granger. <laughs> and
1: Dan Abuhoff.
0: Tamson and Dan read the paper. We'll be back next week.